FBI Confidential, taking you inside the FBI with host Debbie Dujanovic, Cheryl Worsley, and Becky Bruce. Welcome back to a surprise episode of FBI Confidential. I know we've been out of touch for a while. Uh, Debbie and Cheryl still very much hard at work here at KSL doing other things. You may have heard Debbie's new show, Dave and Dujanovic. Um, if you haven't, check it out, 9 to noon, Monday through Thursday. And um, But I'm Becky Bruce, and I'm here with Dave Colley right now, who is the host of a really popular podcast um, that came out of nowhere, Dave, <laughs> called Cold. Yeah. The reason I brought you in, Dave, is that this past week's episode features quite a bit about FBI tactics, and specifically somebody that we interviewed as part of FBI Confidential, Agent Cheney Ingtow. Yeah. And so I wanted to talk to you about the specifics of how his regional computer forensics lab um, plays into the cold podcast, which for those who don't know, is about the disappearance of Susan Powell. Yeah, you get to see uh, the RCFL, as it's called, uh, Intermountain West RCFL, basically at work on a case and how they take uh, information that comes into them from an agency. In this case, it's West Valley City investigating the 2009 disappearance of Susan Powell and all of the digital information that was seized uh, using search warrants in that case how that uh, basically runs through the RCFL, how the agents there work with a uh, local police you know, uh, agencies to draw information and leads out of things like cell phones or computer hard drives or things like that. So one of the things we learned from um, Agent Ingtel when we did our podcast was that it's not just the FBI's lab, yeah. that they've got a lot of um, interagency cooperation here locally. Does that play a part in what they learned from the Powell's computers? I mean, I think you see this was kind of why the RCFL came into existence in the first place. Uh, 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 as digital devices became more and more ubiquitous, you had detectives, say at a city police agency, who wouldn't have the capability to do this kind of digital forensics work where you're going to draw information off of a, off of a device. And maybe it's a file that's been deleted and they're going to go back and recover that. Or they're going to try to, you know, hack their way into an encrypted drive or something like that. So if every single police agency, say in the Salt Lake Valley, is trying to do their own computer forensics work, A, it's a waste of resources because it's, you know, duplicating the the uh, infrastructure to do that work. Um, and B, it, it's, it's just such a drain on time for all of these detectives to have to train on doing, you know, digital forensics in addition to everything else they know about law enforcement. So you bring the FBI in. The FBI says, hey, we will work with you to be a one-stop shop and we'll make these partnerships with all the local agencies. You bring us the stuff. We will sit you down with a, uh, an agent that's been specially trained to do this kind of work. You will work hand-in-hand on this case together, and ultimately, at the end of the day, we'll give you a disc that you can walk out of here uh, with your evidence for your case and take that back to your case file. I think what a lot of people might not realize, too, with some of these cases is um, none of this is as quick as it is on CSI. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It takes a long time. Uh, if, if you take a, say you take a hard drive in, the first thing they are going to do is they're going to make a mirror. So they're going to make an exact copy of that hard drive. And the larger capacity drives, I mean, we're talking terabytes of information nowadays, uh, it takes a lot of time to even just make that copy. Then you actually have to run the forensic, uh, you know, tools on that copy to see what information you can extract 
and you have to sit down and manually go through. Like, it'll categorize the, the files for you, what's maybe there that's a JPEG or, you know, a Word document or something like that. But you then have to actually look through all of those, you know, potentially interesting files to see whether or not they bear any, you know, if, the, if they're evidence in your case. Sure. What is it about the computers seized from Josh Powell that makes them so hard to investigate? So Josh Powell was a frequent encryptor. Uh, We know that his passwords were long and complicated, and they grew longer as the investigation moved forward. And when we say long, we don't mean like 10 characters instead of eight characters. Right. We're talking like 30 plus, 50 plus, maybe upwards of, you know, between 60 and 70 characters in these passwords. And if you think about a password, if it's, you know, four characters, there are only so many variations of four characters that you can do. If you add five, now there's all of those from before plus a whole bunch more. So every character that you add to a password makes it almost, uh, I mean, I'm not a mathematician, but... I was told there would be no math, Dave. Yeah, you're talking about exponential. I mean, just just the the amount of variations of possibilities uh, become enormous. And they do what's called brute forcing in a lot of these cases where the software will just try to guess every single variation one by one by one by one faster than you know you could ever possibly hope to input it personally. And it, it takes a lot of time. Yeah. And obviously, if he's looking at 30 and 50 character passwords or longer, it's probably not QWERTY or <laughs> one, two, three, four, five. Password one. Yeah. Yeah. So as a as a uh, bit of advice out there to anybody listening, maybe make your password a little bit more complicated than what I just said. Yeah. Um, so they've gotten through some encryption levels on some of his stuff, correct? So some of the information that was encrypted, uh, we understand the RCFL was able to get through. There is some discussion in the case file about, you know, decrypted um Drives, and I don't know if that's because they found the password, because there's a human element to this as well. I mean, if you have a 50 plus character password, odds are you don't want to remember that, so you're going to write it down somewhere. And so you'll see on some of these search warrants that they will go in and they'll actually look for, you know, post it notes or things like that. Um, they'll also try to guess, you know, do you put, you know, maybe a, 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 a kid's name and birth date together or something like that. So they, they try guessing some of those common variations first. Uh, but they did get into some of the encrypted drives. We know there's at least one encrypted drive that they were never able to get into. Uh, they've tried sending it to the Secret Service after it left uh, the FBI. It went to a private vendor here in Utah that uh, last we knew was was still working on trying to get through that that encryption on the drive, and as of yet, hasn't been able to to do that. It's just staggering the amount of computers that were seized. I'm I'm now going back an episode before that. Mm-hmm. Um, did you get any sense from Agent Engtao? whether this case was unique in that respect. Yeah, he and I talked about that because one of the strategies that people will try to use to hide digital evidence in a case is making a whole bunch of other irrelevant files. So if you think about the the idea of signal to noise, right? 
um, if you have a lot of noise, it's going to be hard to hear that signal. So they want to create a bunch of superfluous you know, emails or pictures or you know, word files or whatever it is to make it difficult to find maybe the one relevant piece. And it goes back to what I was saying. They have to manually go through and, and, and determine, you know, is this file connected to my case? No. Okay. Set that one aside. Um, Josh, we know, was scanning everything. So in his young adult life, he's doing it himself. Later when he's married, he's having Susan scan, you know, receipts. Uh, flyers, birthday cards, all this kind of stuff. All of those are files that the police have to go through. The FBI at the RCFL has to go through to determine whether or not they're relevant. And it sucks time away from doing other investigative work. Did you get a chance to actually see the RCFL yourself? Yeah. So we did the interview uh, within the RCFL. I didn't exactly take a tour, but, you know, you wouldn't know it from the outside to look at it. It's it's in an office space in, in downtown Salt Lake City that uh, if you didn't know before you got there that it was an FBI facility, you would just think, ah, it's just, you know, just another office. Yeah. Um, he. Having done the uh, Citizens Academy Mm -hmm. over at uh, the FBI Salt Lake City Division headquarters, um, you get a little bit of insight into how they work. And um, that was one of the things that blew me away was that his particular office isn't at the FBI building. Right. It's in office space, just kind of downtown Salt Lake City. Like, what? Yeah. But it goes back to when they put this RCFL together. Uh, You know, it's been it's been quite a few years now. And the FBI, I believe, uh, has has since relocated their office to uh, an area out by Salt Lake City International Airport. Actually, really close to the Wells Fargo facility where, where Susan, Susan Powell worked. used to work. Right, another another uh, odd tie here. Uh, but they they wanted to be in a central location for you know agencies around the valley to be uh, Salt Lake Valley to be bringing information to them. Yeah, so they are uh, a satellite independent of that main FBI office. Yeah. I can't think of anything else I wanted to ask specific about the RCFL's connection to um, the Susan Powell investigation. But I do know that there was other FBI involvement um, the, the week before when you talked about the raid on Steve Powell's house in Washington state. The FBI was one of the agencies that helped carry out that search warrant. Right. So um, can you tell me anything else about what the FBI's involvement has been in Susan Powell's case? Yeah, absolutely. The FBI provided a lot of uh, support to West Valley City Police through this investigation. We know Steve Powell uh, in February of 2010, just a few months into the investigation, he reached out to the FBI himself because he wanted to share his theory with them that uh, Susan had run off to Brazil with a, another missing man. And the FBI coordinated with West Valley Police to go up and facilitate that interview in Tacoma. Uh, they did some forensic testing of materials. In uh, episode five of Cold, we talked about this mystery item that was located in the trash bag that uh, was found in Josh Powell's minivan the day after he returned home from the Pony Express Trail. The uh, West Valley City Police Department sent that item to the FBI for a metallurgical analysis to try to determine what that was. It was inconclusive. And there were a number of other Times when uh, West Valley sent them maybe blood samples or something like that for, you know, chemical analysis. They actually drew in the FBI's behavioral analysis unit from Quantico to try to understand how Josh's mind worked. As part of that process, they uh, they did uh, submitted questionnaires from the people who knew Josh, and the FBI compiled all of those into kind of a, a, a portrait of of Josh 
and the way his his thinking uh, about you know police and all this kind of stuff worked, which is pretty fascinating. And are they still involved to this day, to your knowledge? You know, uh, since this case has been declared cold in 2013, uh, my understanding is that uh, there are no active leads being investigated. So at this point, I don't believe the FBI is taking part. But certainly that relationship between the agencies is is ongoing. And if there was a need, uh, West Valley would absolutely go back to the FBI and, and solicit their help. What's the thing that you think has surprised you the most as you've investigated the Susan Powell case? <laughs> Uh, man, that's tough. It's a story that's just full of surprises, right? Every time you think you have a handle on on the direction that this story is going to go, it, it takes a hard left or right turn and goes, you know, 90 degrees opposite of what you were expecting. Uh, for me, one of the things that really blew me away was in that FBI interview with Steve Powell. There was a moment when one of the two special agents that was questioning Steve uh, you know, basically told him, look, your son, if he killed his wife, there's something broken. And if he's broken that way, he might kill his kids. And that happened like two years before Josh Powell did just that. So there was an incredible moment of of foresight on the part of the FBI to see where this was likely to go. And it just breaks my heart to know that uh, that Steve didn't take that warning seriously. Yeah. Well, I know um, you've actually got more episodes to investigate and put together, and and I don't want to keep you from that. So I'm going to keep it short on you here. Um, But because I do have you here and I do have an audience, I would love to tell people how they can find your podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for that, Becky. Uh, Thecoldpodcast.com is our website. Uh, Certainly uh, all of the major podcast players, you know, if you're on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, on Google, you know, Stitcher, Spotify, all of the above, uh, Cold is free to listen to. You don't have to pay for a subscription. And uh, as well, you can also find us on social. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Cold Podcast. Perfect. All right. Well, we will let people track that down. Um, Obviously, we just gave you a taste of it here, but there's so much more to Dave's podcast, and that's available now. So go check it out, and thanks for listening. Thank you. Thank you.